We're heading into the home stretch of cold storage, but before we get into the nitty-gritty, like those chocolatey things in Carvel cakes, we wanted to hear about Carvel memories. So we got roving reporter Bridget Bartolini to interview some of Carvel's greatest fans. All of us kids and my dad loved Carvel. My mother would only let us go to a place like Carvel on special events. This is Bridget Bartolini, roving reporter for Cold Storage. I'm speaking with Robin Beatty, a storyteller, teacher, and writer from Brooklyn. You know, if if we had done a show at school or we had, you know, if some family was visiting, my mother would let us have flying saucers. Those were so cool. And, uh, you know, they were so much better than ice cream sandwiches. And, and honestly, I didn't know why we couldn't come there more often, because it felt like when you go to Carvel, in my family, it was a party. After we started driving, Carvel was one of our places to just go and sort of hang out outside and gossip. That That's what I remember. And we would just stand underneath the eaves. And if they chased us away, we'd go sit in our car in the parking lot. Would you hang out inside the Carvel too? No, it wasn't big enough. It wasn't big enough for that. And and they didn't want us (laughs) inside the Carvel. The bad kids would come too, and they were definitely outside, but they became our friends because, you know, ice cream loosens everybody's tongue and makes everybody a friend. I'm Paul Finnegan, and this is Cold Storage. Heather, got any memories to share yourself? Well, to be honest, I swear I know Carvel more from the commercials than the ice cream. We weren't really an ice cream family. I think I was more into Ho-Ho's and Twinkies. The whole reason cold storage came to be, for me at least, was because I was more interested in who Tom Carvel was. I mean, I'm big on nostalgia, so that was part of it. But it was more like, who was this guy? Yes, we have an old-school type Carvel on Metropolitan Avenue, not far from where I am right now. I'm talking about Queens, Queens, New York. But they're few and far between, so it's, it's definitely a changing model in the Carvel franchise world. Well, when it comes to memories, we've got two separate accounts of what it was like working at Carvel. Here's one, uh, a woman I interviewed, uh, a former employee I'll call Deborah, who worked at a Carvel in central New Jersey around the late 1970s. First time I ever did cocaine was in Carvel. That was Deborah, who now runs her own restaurant in Florida. But she actually had a lot more to say than that. And hell, it was the 70s. And I got to tell you, I don't think we were the only Carvel that was like that. I think it was very like, like we partied our asses off there. It was the craziest time of my life as a teenager, like uh, Studio 54, like all of a sudden it was like, welcome to adulthood. Uh, they were just so, that family was just so chill, you know, and we got paid in cash. Never had a check, always cash in an envelope. And you could only use Carvel products, right? Straight up only. I think the only thing that we didn't have to use were bananas. I think that was the the only thing that you were allowed not to have to buy through Carvel. Strawberries always came in a can. There was no whipped cream. If you had Hershey syrup in there, you were done. They came in a lot. 
like checking, looking at syrups, looking at, I mean, he was on it. Because if you're going to have a franchise, you are buying from me, just like McDonald's. You know, you're not buying lettuce from Publix or ShopRite or, you know, you're buying our lettuce. They're very committed to Tom Carell. You know what I mean? Like, they didn't bend the rules, nothing. Not this family. I don't know if other people did, but they were probably one of the first people that had seasonal. They had pumpkin ice cream and what's that? That liquid, that eggnog. Eggnog it would show up in no, in October. And I do remember buy one, get one free Wednesday. I, I think it still goes on. I go to a produce store that's next door to Carvel, and it says buy one, get one free Wednesday. Oh, today's Wednesday. Go get one. <laughs> what am I doing here? They were some of the funnest days of my life. I would never give that up. I feel like I grew up so much there. I totally got, like, camaraderie, family. Like, we were really were a family there. We really were. Thank you so much. I really appreciated it. I, I like the little flashback, Heather. Roving reporter Bridget Bartolini has a somewhat different take from Nancy on Staten Island. This is Bridget Bartolini, roving reporter for Cold Storage. I'm speaking with Nancy Richards, a retired teacher, stand-up comedian, and a former Carvel worker from Staten Island, New York. Nancy, you used to work at Carvel when you were a teenager? Yes, I did. It was one of my first jobs. So dad worked in an ice cream factory in Bed-Stuy, so I was destined to go to Carvel to work. Ice cream was in your genes. It was. It was in my genes and in my stomach. Lots of it. <laughs> How old were you when you started working there? Probably 14 or 15. What were your responsibilities? My responsibilities were everything. We ran the store. The owner was never there. So we served people. We um, made the ice cream. We cleaned up the store. We closed the store. We opened the store. We made the cakes. I liked making cookie puss cakes. That was like the new hot cake back then. And then Fudgy the Whale. I loved Fudgy the Whale. And I always associated Fudgy the Whale with Father's Day. We put little ties on them. So what was it like working there? Oh, it was, it was wonderful. I mean, aside from the fact that we worked long hours and we were there till like after midnight by ourselves sometimes, which wasn't too cool. We worked in an ice cream factory. So when it was slow, um, we ate a lot of ice cream and uh, we had ice cream fights. And what is an ice cream fight? How does an ice cream fight work? Uh, usually it involves at the end of the night when there's no customers left. So pretty much throwing cold ice cream at each other or down each other's back. But we usually did that, like, when, if it got slow, if there was nobody around. Like, in the winter, like, you know, there wasn't a lot of people in the winter getting ice cream. Or after when we were closing the store. So that was fun. It does sound fun. So there were basically a bunch of unsupervised teenagers. teenagers in an ice cream store. I mean, how bad is that? So that can't be too bad. You know, and we made a little bit of money. I definitely made under minimum wage. But, you know, Lou paid us in cash. And we had to keep on top of him. Thank God I had my mother because she was always like, you got to pay my daughter. What are you doing here? My daughter needs to get paid. She works for you, you know, because he definitely took advantage of us in that aspect. I worked in a deli after that. So um, I don't I'm not sure why I quit. Probably because Lou was a really bad owner. 
<laughs> he made us work. My mother probably made me stop because he had us working such late hours. Yeah, you mentioned working until midnight. Yeah, is, even later. Is yeah. it standard for stores to be open that late? Yeah, you'd be open till midnight in the summer. Like people would come in uh, for ice cream till like 10, 30, 11 o'clock. And then by the time you cleaned up and left the store, it was 12, one o'clock in the morning. When you think about Carvel, what do you think makes Carvel special? Well, back then it was the commercials because mm. Tom Carvel was always in the commercials. And he was like, hi, my name is Tom Carvel. Come to my store. I have Fudgy the Whales, Cookie Puss, I make cakes, Happy Father's Day, get your father a cake. You know, like I never saw Tom Carvel. Like I just, you know, the only person I saw was Lou, who was a jerk. But, but Tom was like this, this mythical figure. Like who was he? He was on the commercials um, and, uh, and he had this distinctive voice. Like my name is Tom Carvel. And it's sad because I don't think you see his, you hear his voice anymore. He, he had a very distinctive voice, you know, and he was like this old guy. My name is Tom Carvel. You know, he said that. My name is Tom Carvel. And when I think about the store that I originally worked in, it was, and it, it shows the changing of, of the times because Carvel was the only store in that parking lot. It was, it was like, it looked like a big Wetsons. You remember what Wetsons or like Burger Kings used to look like? They were big. They was, it was like one big store. It had like a big arch. And like, if you look at old McDonald's and Burger Kings and Carvel's, it was, and that was the only store and it had the entire parking lot. And if you go back to that location where it is today, I was actually just there this afternoon. Carvel is still there, but it's in a strip mall and there's five other stores there. So it's reduced from itself to this little, and that's what happened to it. It got, it, it got smaller. But one of the things that I love today is when I walk into a Carvel, I know how it's done. Like I can walk in a store and I know how, you know, how things get done. And so I feel like I'm in on a little secret. But all those late nights and low pay is worth it when you hear Stuart Jacobson talk about how Carvel brought all kinds of people together. This is Bridget Bartolini, roving reporter for Cold Storage. I'm speaking with Stuart Jacobson, a storyteller and trustee from Queens, New York. Stuart, I know that you had a love for Carvel as a child. I tell you, first thing I want to say is that uh, there's a Carvel experience I had, which is, and looking back upon my life, the first time I've ever experienced unmitigated sheer joy, essential, uh, 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 multi-sensual joy. And that is when I used to go to Carvel and we'd get a vanilla soft serve and they dip it in that chocolate syrup and they hand it to you. And the, the, by the end of it was still a little bit liquidy, hadn't yet fully coalesced, hadn't yet fully hardened. And we get that, that first, uh, bite or that well, first whatever slurp or whatever whatever it was that to me it, it, it had texture it had taste it had flavor the right amount of sweetness and I, I look back upon that and you know i've traveled all over the world and i've, I've eaten ice cream and sweets and and food everywhere and that goes back to one of the four or five best food experiences i've ever had 
So that that's I have a real soft spot in my heart for Carvel just for that, for introducing me to the love of something through my mouth. They had me. <laughs> so then the other thing about Carvel is this is more more complex. The part of Queens where I lived in 77th Road, that was an exclusively Jewish enclave. And in order to get to Carvel, we had to go through basically the Italian area. And my parents were very, very fearful people, even though there really was nothing to be fearful of. But I knew that once we got to Carvel, my parents would relax. It was sort of a safe harbor. You know, everybody mingled, everybody, you know, ate together, everybody enjoyed themselves together. So not only did I cherish the memory of Carvel, the sensual and taste memory, also found it to be a place of comfort. I think the through line in all these stories is that Carvel made you feel like family. Whether you were doing lines behind the counter, having ice cream fights, or being a little kid ordering a flying saucer. The fact that each franchise was usually run by a family gave it that feel, but so did the universal love for something as innocent as ice cream. And as Mike Shane said in his interview in episode 4, Tom Carvel never had any kids of his own, so in his better moments he infused that aspect into each of his stores as much as he did his buy one get one free coupons. In his worst moments, it led to a lot of litigation. Tom Carvel, the man who won the Horatio Alger Award in 1957, was sued in the mid-1950s by a group of Carvel franchise owners for illegally restricting their supplies by forcing them to buy only Carvel products. Now, things like buying only Carvel mix and syrups made sense, as Deborah said, God forbid you had Hershey's syrup in your Carvel store. But that doesn't mean you're allowed to back your franchisees into a corner by jacking up the prices. That went for napkins and spoons and pretty much everything you saw at Carvel, except bananas. These people were supposed to be your allies, your front line in the cutthroat battle for a king of ice cream. Instead, they were often treated as cash cows, a necessary evil since Tom Carvel couldn't be everywhere at once. At the same time, according to Carvel's lawyer, Herbert Ross, the Federal Trade Commission, or FTC, brought another action against Carvel for unfair practices. It could have been settled, Ross said, for a modest amount of money, but TC, as Roth and many people called Tom Carvel, insisted on fighting it. Carvel won that lawsuit, as well as a $10.5 million judgment from the plaintiff's lawyer, Louis Greenfield a former FTC employee who then ran his own legal practice and who, Carvel said, provoked the lawsuits. Greenfield was disbarred. The FTC also cleared Carvel of charges of unfair franchising methods, but it was a Pyrrhic victory, meaning he won, but not really. As Carvel explained in a New York Times article from 1979, We were exonerated, but we lost over 70% of our chain. It cost us about 15 states, including Pennsylvania, where we had the highest dollar volume per store. And all this came at a time when the franchise business in the United States was booming. Paris, by the way, was a Greek king who defeated the Romans in a battle that took place in 279 BCE, but it cost him his army. That didn't mean Carvel stopped doing things his way. According to Frank Hubner, Carvel's executive vice president, the FDA ruled that if Carvel was going to insist on selling all its ingredients to its franchisees, it had to be responsible for creating those ingredients. So the company bought a 600-acre dairy farm in Pine Plains, New York, 
about 100 miles north of New York City. When the FDA didn't press them to follow through, Tom decided to build a golf course on the property and develop home sites around the course and created a tournament. This dairy farm became a Carvel estate, a second home for Tom and Agnes, and also the perennially under construction All-American Sports City, which Carvel viewed as a kind of Disney World with an emphasis on sports, particularly golf. His dream wasn't to make an ice cream paradise, it was to be part of a PGA tour. Because if there's one thing Tom Carvel loved as much as the ice cream business, it was golf. He loved being surrounded by A-listers, and golf will get you there sooner than being a soda jerk will. And golf is especially good for business wheeling and dealing, as my cousin Freddie Hodge explained in an interview we did that unfortunately was a little too echoey to use. Sorry, Freddie, it was my bad. But Freddie said one of his business professors told him, and I'm paraphrasing here, if you take away one thing from this class, it's learn golf. So Freddie bought a $1,000 set of clubs, learned how to play, because he can't impress CEOs with mulligans. And now he owns his own power washing business, Clearview Washing, servicing homes and commercial businesses in Central and South Jersey. Call 732-462-1187. This Phil Rizzuto moment has been brought to you by The Money Store. Getting back to Tom Carvel, Frank Hubner said they had planned on having a children's ice cream world that never panned out. Though there was a zoo opened in anticipation of it. But golf did allow Tom Carvel to rub elbows with the greats of the day, like Perry Como, Arthur Godfrey, Jackie Gleason, Bob Hope, and limo king Bill Fugazi, who got an executive spot at Carvel Corp despite being named Fugazi. But there was more trouble in paradise. In August 1979, New York State Attorney General Robert Abrams' office brought an antitrust suit against Carvel, charging it with forcing its 400 franchisees in New York to follow certain advertising and purchasing policies, saying the company employed fear, threat, harassment, extortion, coercion and repressive measures, as well as fraud, fraudulent concealment, misrepresentation and deceit. If any of our franchises know where we can buy supplies and toppings and syrups that meet our standards at a lower price, just let us know and we'll buy them. But we insist on knowing exactly what goes into our products. According to Carvel's lawyer Herbert Roth, after eight years, Carvel could have settled the suit by giving the New York State Attorney General's office two or three thousand dollars worth of Carvel coupon books. The legal bills he was incurring were running much higher every month. TC talked to his wife Agnes who asked him, If you aren't doing anything wrong, why are you giving the man money? He went on for another two years and eventually the state withdrew its suit. It helped that another one of Carvel's lawyers was Brendan Byrne, former governor of New Jersey. It was another Pyrrhic victory, but there was one thing, well, several things, that would save Carvel now that couldn't save him in the 1950s. Cookie Puss, Cookie Opus, Fudgy the Whale, Hug Me the Bear, and countless different novelty cakes that were based on molds that Frank Hubner created but never saw a dime from. Though Hubner didn't care so much. He loved the old guy, but he was driven so crazy by Carvel's constant late-night calls about business that Hubner not only quit but moved across the country. However, these characters, in combination with Carvel's voice in those commercials and the family atmosphere of a Carvel store, was what happened on stage. 
This was Carvel's genius for marketing, which included everything from comic books called The Adventures of Captain Carvel to the Little Miss Half Pint Contest, a beauty pageant for toddler-aged girls. And I happen to have one of the Little Miss Half Pint contestants right here, Tara Cox, who was apparently cheated out of winning and is going to set the record straight. <laughs> Thank you for having me and telling my story. <laughs> Well, it needs to be told. <laughs> this is important stuff. This is major scandal. This is this is very yes. important ice cream lore. Mm -hmm. Forget about everything else. This is the most important part. This is the cherry on top. So tell us, how did this begin? And and for a guy, I'll just say whose close friend was named Bill Fugazi. I'm not surprised that something went a little amiss. So um, yeah, take it from the top, Tara. Okay, so this all started in 1976. So, you know, not that long ago. Um, I was two years old at the time. So I've just dated myself here. Um, and apparently, yes, I'm the same age. Okay. <laughs> um, so apparently, it's funny, because no one in my family seems to remember too many details. So I've kind of pieced the story together. My brother, who's nine years older than me was the most reliable source in all of this. Um, but apparently, there was this little Miss Half Plant competition. Um, and my dad was a photographer. So, of course, there were millions of photos of me and a neighbor worked at the local Carvel in Massapequa, Long Island, where I grew up. And I think she suggested, hey, why don't you submit Tara's photo? Um, and no one ever thought anything would come of it. You know, and this is, again, not my family's sort of toddlers and tiaras sort of <laughs> destiny. So it's even shocking that I was involved with something like this. So I guess they submitted a photo and apparently I won the local division. I won the Massapequa Little Miss Half Pint competition. So then we moved on to the big competition in Yonkers, uh, which according to my brother, there was like hundreds of girls there. Um, it was the big event and there were, I guess, different heats during the day or however those beauty pageants are done, where it got narrowed down from many to you know to 20 to you know, 10 or, or at, at the very end it was I think he said it was probably five or ten girls were left and so we were all the semi-finalists in the Little Miss Half Pint pageant very exciting and one of the final questions they asked us all and now we're all toddlers we're all I was two so everyone's very very tiny um so the MC asked us all, you know, what's your favorite ice cream? So, of course, it goes down the line and we're all, you know, chocolate, vanilla, pistachio, the Carvel flavors and whatnot. And um, one of the girls uh, hesitated when it was her time to answer. And apparently the MC bent down in her ear. She smiled and then she replied to what her favorite ice cream was, Carvel. And she went on to become the winner. So apparently this was scandal. My grandfather got very upset and was running around saying that the whole thing was fixed and the other audience members were agreeing with him. And apparently a whole hubbub ensued from that point on. And, and my dad was mortified, but my grandfather and my brother was like, but Pop was right, and, but it was crazy. So again, this is the recollections of my brother when he was 11. Um, and that was that. And in the end, I got a sash. There's some photo floating around the internet that I, I'm pretty sure is me in the, with uh, the runners up. And that's the end of my story. And uh, did your family then never go to set foot in Carvel again? 
No, actually just the opposite. So the entire neighborhood just called me Little Miss Half Pint. And there are still people to this day that, you know, when I run into them on Facebook or whatnot, will still refer to me as Little Miss Half Pint, which is hilarious and slightly mortifying, but also kind of awesome. Um, and no, my family were huge Carvel junkies. We went to that Carvel. That particular location is still there with the same owners, but it's no longer a Carvel franchise. Um, but dad still goes there and gets his ice cream from them. So we were, my family was huge Carvel junkies, which is the only legitimate thing I can think about as to why I got entered into this contest was that my family was trying to pit me out for some free ice cream or something, which is the only legitimate excuse for why they would have gotten me involved in some sort of a pageant. Cause that was again, not the kind of thing that my mother would encourage you know, me to do. Um, so it's surprising that I was involved with this at all, but I'm pretty sure that it was the, with the hope of ice cream or a lifetime of flying saucers or brown, brown bonnets or something like that. Yeah. We got to make this kid work for us. <laughs> exactly. What I think the, 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 the real story is, is that you may not have won the crown per se, and you may not have uh, gotten your family a lifetime supply of cookie puss, but uh, you are truly Little Miss Half Pint, as you are known still today. Uh, thank you. I appreciate that. It is. It's in my heart. <laughs> it definitely is. I feel like I should go walk into a Carvel with that tiny little sash. I guess I could wear it as a headband these days or something and demand, you know, my place in the Carvel royalty. And I should I should have a black card or something at Carvel. I don't know. There should be something. <laughs> That would be hilarious. If you do feel like doing that, let me know and I will film it. It'll be like, I demand. I will wear a gown. I will go full on pageant girl yeah, with my right? sash, my head, slightly Rambo style, you know. Awesome. I don't know if you heard this, but another famous Long Islander uh, who you may know of, Lindsay Lowen, um, mm -hmm. several years ago, Carvel gave out these black like Amex cards. As I like remember hearing about those, yes. <laughs> so uh, Lindsay Lohan, I guess either she got one or she and her mom got one. And they ended up abusing the card so much. Like they would call constantly for uh, Carvel stuff, like free cakes and free this and free that all the time that finally Carvel had to say, no more. And a spokesperson, I think, said, we never actually thought people would use these. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. <laughs> I mean, you give it out. I mean, I, I would never abuse a Carvel Black card. I would, I would, you know, enjoy my Carvel in moderation as I do with all things these days. But, <laughs> but that's hilarious. I, I know it's it's totally fitting. It's, uh, yes, it's, it's another uh, Carvel Long Island story. So, yeah. um, well, Tara, I'm glad there are no hard feelings between you and Carvel. Um, none whatsoever, none at all. I uh, love that's Carvel. Good. I love able a lot to go day. on and live a fulfilling life. <laughs> it's been it's been a bit of a struggle, but yes, I have had a fulfilling life post the scandal. <laughs> it's it's such a funny story, and it really does hold a special place in my heart. And I love that I still have the sash. And um, yeah, I, I it just cracks me up. And I and I am a, I'm a huge fan of Carvel. I always will be. So. That was Tara Cox, the Little Miss Half Pint of Massapequa. And you know, the pageants, the giveaways, the cakes, these are all what kept Carvel afloat and succeeding in spite of itself. But again, that was on stage. Behind the scenes was a different matter. So Paul, what's next on Cold Storage? Next on Cold Storage, 
The Death of Tom Carvel. Oh, we'd like to thank Robin Beatty, Deborah, Nancy Richards, Stuart Jacobson, Russ Hodge, and most importantly, roving reporter Bridget Bartolini. As for me, I'm Heather Quinlan. And I'm Paul Finnegan, and you've been listening to Cold Storage.